It is Monday, December 20th, and we know that a lot of people are off work starting today, and we wanted to bring you some content uh, as you're wrapping presents or doing shopping or getting food together, and so a very special episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast for you. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and this is a special episode where we're bringing together some great uh, interviews, discussions we've had recently about a very serious problem here in New Mexico as well as the country really, and that's the ongoing drug epidemic and really focusing in on fentanyl, meth, and P2P. These are drugs that have been around for a while, but their potencies are just out of this world. Uh, They are just ever-present in our communities and extremely dangerous because they are cross-laced with each other. Uh, Customers, as you will find out in this episode, uh, if you want to call them customers, are actually asking for fentanyl laced with meth or vice versa. And the outcomes of that can be disastrous, especially with uh, overdoses and deaths. Narcan, which is uh, sort of the silver bullet in sort of treating uh, overdoses often doesn't work or takes four or five doses when it comes to this meth and this fentanyl that is so, so potent. And so we really wanted to dive into this, and there's been a lot of great work going on here locally as well that we wanted to focus on. I want to first point you to a recent episode where we brought you uh, an interview we did with Sam Quinones, who is a former LA Times reporter and author who's been working on this issue for a long time. His latest book is The Least of Us, and he really outlines why this is such a crisis uh, for us all and why we need to get our arms around it. Uh, This week, we want to start with our line opinion panel from our most recent show. A reminder, that is former state senator Dee Dee Feldman, as well as regular and and an attorney, Laura Sanchez, And also we welcome back Merritt Allen from Vox Optima, and they are reacting to reporting. We hope you got a chance to read a three-part series last week from the Albuquerque Journal outlining the problem and also how uh, fentanyl in particular is impacting our violent crime here in Albuquerque. We've got a link to that reporting in the show description, so we encourage you if you hadn't had a chance to check that out to do that. Uh, It's got an unbelievable slideshow as well from photojournalist Roberto Rosales from the Albuquerque Journal as well. And we'll get into more with that in a bit. But here, first of all, let us check in with host Gene Grant and the line. Welcoming the line, opinion panel back for one final discussion this week, and it's a tough one, the impact of fentanyl on crime in the state of New Mexico and the city of Albuquerque. We've covered these issues here on New Mexico in Focus, including an interview last week with author and former LA Times reporter Sam Quinones, but the problem is only growing. The Albuquerque Journal also published a powerful three-part series on the issue just this week. Give it a read if you have the time, it's definitely worth it. The DEA says it saw a 900% increase in seizures of the drug this past year, surpassing heroin as the number one drug driving crime in Albuquerque. There are so many layers to this, from the manufacturing of the drug to distribution to the actual drug use. Didi, let me start with Laura. Laura, is there a new way 
the state and law enforcement can tackle this problem because it seems at this point the, the current tactics are obviously not working or as, as effective as we'd like them to be. Yeah, you know, I, I read it as I'm sure many of you did, the mm -hmm. stories in the journal. And I mean, it really reflects a level of hopelessness that I was not fully aware of mm -hmm. among folks in our community. Um, I mean, I think it just signals that people are looking for an escape. And unfortunately, that escape for many is drugs. And, and then add to that that these drugs are often laced with other things or they're much more potent than what you would normally find in this kind of um, in this kind of drug. It, it's really a crisis situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had the opportunity recently to to listen in on some um, through Leadership Albuquerque, which I'm doing right now. We just did a, uh, a crime and, and public safety day uh, and had a chance to talk with the, the district attorney here in Albuquerque, as well as other programs that the county and the city are doing. Mm -hmm. And they're definitely trying to work on addressing this issue of um, providing a more a community policing type of model, um, more working with nonprofits and other um, local agencies to try to address this issue where there's gaps between, you know, I mean, you don't want to, people have a, a drug problem, you don't want to mm -hmm. necessarily just incarcerate them. Mm -hmm. However, that often fuels a lot of public, you know, uh, uh, property crime. That's and right. so it's this, there's a cycle there that um, that certainly law enforcement is familiar with, the court system is familiar with. And I think we have to figure out how to add more resources to those that are trying to fill the gaps between those two, right? Mm -hmm. So that we're able to address um, this problem. I don't know what the answer is, but right. I know that there's very, very intelligent people working on it and there's a need for more funding. Right. So that's definitely an area where, you know, some of the surplus, <laughs> if we have that uh, coming up in the, in the next session, um, could could seek to address this serious interesting, problem. Interesting last point there, absolutely. Uh, Merritt, one step the DEA, just to follow on Laura's point there, one step the DEA has already taken is uh, creating Operation Engage. That's a program that takes a deeper dive into community outreach, as Laura mentioned, reaching out to local law enforcement, schools, faith-based organizations, uh, even <laughs> medical professionals. You know, how important are these types of programs and, and can they be expanded beyond, as Laura mentioned, just uh, money? We need people power to run these things too, don't we? Absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think what one thing we have seen is the past four uh, decades of zero tolerance for um, drug crimes has only resulted in us being, you know, the democracy with the largest percentage of our population incarcerated. That's right. Um, but it has not stopped the demand for drugs in our population. Um, and so a, a zero tolerance, tough on crime approach um, is not, and particularly in Albuquerque, is not reducing violent crime and is not reducing property crime and is not reducing drug use. Mm -hmm. So um, while as a conservative, I don't um, necessarily uh, support uh, uh, more government spending, this is a place where we need to spend because to Laura's point and uh, to your point, this has so many layers. This is where uh, we see the chronic homelessness and the brazen homelessness. You drive down I-40 and you see all the encampments. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned in one more thing, just standing, spending a Saturday night outside the Presbyterian downtown ER, um, you see the effects of uh, addiction. You see um, addicts in need and people in crisis. Uh, one of the uh, points the Albuquerque Journal mentioned is the estimate that 25% of our homicides are fentanyl related. Wow. Um, this is uh, th this is a tremendous problem. And the scary thing, of course, is this is not like other drugs. It's easy to conceal. Mm -hmm. It's easy to manufacture. It's all chemical. So there's no raw material that has to be grown 
uh, there's no dependency. It can all be manufactured. Mm -hmm. So um, we do have to um, address resources <clears throat> and, and uh, direct resources and direct resources quickly into a variety of different areas um, uh, at law enforcement, at behavioral health, at treatment programs, at community outreach, and uh, try and uh, get some sorts of uh, 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 just uh, st uh, from from a treatment, from a stopping the f uh, flow of drugs mm -hmm. to a, a greater community uh, policing, because Albuquerque is becoming uh, a scary and hopeless place to be. <clears throat> it's a difficulty, and Senator, when you realize you know we're so close to the border, and it's a big factor. The DEA and other agencies point to Mexican drug cartels as one of the main contributors to the problem here in our state. So it's not an easy question to answer, but how can New Mexico collaborate with the feds and others? And maybe by extension, the Mexican government to get a handle on this? Well, I think this is uh, so new and uh, it's it really demands not just money and collaboration with Mexico, but this is a new uh, class of drug users that mm -hmm. are using social media that are, are like non-professionals. They're, they're rank amateurs and, and yet uh, they are you know, dealing these little blue pills that are less expensive than heroin, uh, do not, uh, do not, um, uh, their effects are not stopped by Narcan, uh, and right. the traditional, the traditional uh, weapons that have been used against overdoses. And so you're getting a tremendous number of overdoses among uh, younger people, That's right. and uh, it it requires, um, you know, the kind of person like Jennifer Burke. She 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 started Serenity Mesa. She came to the legislature early on when her son was still alive, and talked about um, the uh, the danger of opioids. And this is an opioid or an opioid cut with fen fentanyl. Um, and um, her approach is a very one-on-one, -on -one personal, um, personal approach to each of those people who are willing to play Russian roulette. Right. I mean, yeah. this hopelessness is two out of five yeah. of these bills could be deadly. It's amazing and when you think about it. it. That's right. Hey, Laura, picking up on Dee Dee's point, um, Dr. Brandon Warwick, he's an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at uh, UNM Hospital. Oof, hard quote here. He said a recent troubling trend at UNMH is fentanyl overdoses in children. Uh, you know, before 2020, had it only treated two, but that number has significantly increased. Some with significant brain damage, no one has died. But what do we need to talk to kids about, you know, drug literacy? Is there something here we need to change? Because obviously we can't go back to just say no. That's just not going to work. But something does need to be expressed to kids about this little blue pill and how dangerous it is. <clears throat> you reached back with just say no to like my childhood. Right. <laughs> Nancy Reagan stuff. Um, that was, I mean, there's a whole, I think a couple generations maybe now who have no idea what that means. That's probably true. Um, but Yes, I think there needs to be a lot more education. Um, mm -hmm. I think we need to do everything. Everything needs to be on the table because it's not just educating children about uh, drug literacy, but it's also, I mean, it's educating parents. It's trying to figure out what are we, what are the parents doing? You know, why are they being so irresponsible when it comes to mm -hmm. um, taking care of their children? Like what needs to happen in that family unit um, to, to protect those children? And this is 
a bigger issue. Obviously, we hear all kinds of um, news stories all the time about kids being in danger in their own home. Right. And that's a, a terrible situation that we've come to. Yep. So, yes, I think drug literacy absolutely should occur. Mm-hmm. How that happens, I don't know, because that's a that's a very difficult conversation. You don't want to, you know, you want to educate, but at the same time, you don't want to sort of advertise what what's out there. That's a good and point. That, also, I, I, to recognize that kids are getting educated through Snapchat, through that's right. social media, all kinds of stuff, that's and that's right. not good. What Dee Dee mentioned uh, earlier, that's a tough thing to go up against, and it's going to take a lot of parental work to d- get on top of this. Thanks again to our line panel, as always, this week. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Mentioned at the top of the show that there's a lot of great work being done despite the dismal, bleak outlook around fentanyl and meth and P2P here in Albuquerque and across the state. And at the forefront of that is Serenity Mesa Recovery Center, especially when we're talking about adolescent um, uh, drug patients here in New Mexico. They, they deal with under 21 years of age, I believe. And for a long time in New Mexico, we just didn't have this resource. It was only in Las Cruces. And so Serenity Mesa has been around for a while now. And they are doing terrific work, terrific work. And so we were joined by Lou Duran of Serenity Mesa to talk about what they are seeing and hearing from the patients that come in and the work that they're doing. And also some really valuable advice, especially for parents, again, since they work with young people on how to address this with your kids. Because as we've mentioned time and time again, the potency of these drugs means that all it can take is one uh, try of one of these drugs and that, that can be the end of your life. There's just no wiggle room, uh, no possibilities for mistakes here oftentimes. So important to have those conversations. Difficult to do though, and Lou has got some great advice. And wanna thank our correspondent Laura Paskis who uh, stepped away from her usual beat of environmental news because she cares passionately about this topic and understands the importance of it Uh, and so she's responsible for all of this great uh, reporting and these great interviews and so let's toss it over to her now with Lou Duran from Serenity Mesa. Right, Lou Duran, thanks for joining me just to kind of situate everybody. Um, we had author Sam Quinones in the studio recently when he was here in Albuquerque to talk about his new book, The Least of Us, which focuses on um, the rise in a new type of methamphetamines and also fentanyl. And we have Lou Duran here today. I'm hoping, Lou, that you can help put some of the things that Sam talked about broadly into a a local perspective. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Laura, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So kind of like broadly speaking here in Albuquerque and and maybe New Mexico in general, what do you see are some of the, the biggest challenges Mm -hmm. that people are facing with respect to, um, addiction, um, maybe just here in Albuquerque? Sure. So we founded Serenity Mesa in 2015 when we, we actually started in 2010, but we actually opened our facility in 2015 for boys only. And we did that because there was a lack of resources in New Mexico, right? Back when we were dealing with our children and their addictions. And 
Um, back then, the, the drug of choice was heroin. And so for 10 years, we've advocated for heroin, and we've had to really reevaluate, re reset, and kind of um, refocus on education and awareness and prevention in, in Albuquerque and New Mexico, because we do serve youth across New Mexico. And so what we are finding is, and it started a couple years ago when COVID hit, is we started seeing more fentanyl. And as advocates for 10 years, we had heard about fentanyl. And as Sam mentioned, um, New Mexico is kind of late to the party. We've had a little bit of fentanyl in the last five years or so, but we were hearing other states where it was just devastating communities like no other. And, you know, we often said, okay, it's coming our way. It's coming our way. How are we going to prepare? But we didn't, we didn't even know how to prepare. What do you do? We just, we're, our mindset was heroin. And so what, what we have found is about 80% currently of our residents now do have fentanyl in their systems when they come in. And oftentimes they don't know it. And as Sam talked about, it's because kids are, or people are buying drugs that they think are actual pills that come from, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And in reality, they're not. They're, you know, synthetic and they're made um, illegally by either drug cartel or drug dealers on the street. Um, another thing he touched on is there's so many dealers now that um, they can make these pills literally in their garage. And um, we, we, you know, often don't know where it's coming from. They don't know how much fentanyl is in every pill. And so then that's when you see, you know, lots of overdoses um, because people just don't know how much fentanyl is in the pill that they're getting. And they don't even know sometimes they think they're buying an oxy or, um, you know, other, other substances, even pot is starting to get laced with fentanyl and cocaine as well. So Sam talked quite a bit about how fentanyl is different and how, how um, you don't often get a second chance. Um, no. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the, the risks and impacts of fentanyl specifically compared to some of the other drugs that we've seen in the past? Sure. Um, you know, I, I hate saying these words, but really sometimes a person can be a functioning addict, similar to, you know, a functioning alcoholic. And so someone who maybe just uses cocaine on the weekends or smokes pot just on the weekends and, you know, it gets laced with fentanyl and it changes their brain composition, similar to um, heroin did. It creates these intense cravings and must have, and it, and it takes over every aspect of their life, even if they absolutely love their loved ones and have a fabulous job and, you know, everything's going great in their life. And all of a sudden they need their cocaine every day and they don't know it's laced with fentanyl. The, let's say they try to stop the withdrawals from fentanyl are even so much worse than heroin and heroin was unbelievable as it was. And now to hear um, people talk about what it's like to come, you know, withdraw from fentanyl, they just can't, you know, 24 hours in and they've given up. It's so hard. It's physically hard. It's emotionally hard. And then they just go right back to using. And I would say that's probably one of the top three biggest struggles we have is it, it's just a different kind of addiction, I, you know, like no other. So the resources that you all provide how has, how has fentanyl changed your ability to provide for clients or provide for families? And what have you had to shift and change? Sure. So we, you know, what we provide hasn't changed. We still offer beds to youth. 
Uh, I'm proud to say we don't charge the families anything. They can come to us for free because we are able to get funding through city, county, and state uh, and federal fundings uh, and fundraisers. And um, you know, the the it, the shift is just where it more falls into our clinical team. You know, they have to. The drug is more intense, so maybe the therapy needs to be more intense. You know, it's um, and then it's a challenge. There is not the golden rule or list or um, go-to treatment plan that is going to make a difference. It, it really is just an individual. They have to be vested in their recovery, you know, first and foremost. And, the, and, and if we can just get them to that point, um, then we can move forward with their therapy. And, you know, as far as change though, we, we really, there is no change in our resource. We're here for everybody. And if we can't help them, we find them. Um, help. We belong to a group called New Mexico Leaders in Recovery, and we have this email chain. And every day, you know, someone, if they have a challenging client, they just reach out and there's, I don't even know how many providers on this line anymore. And we all just jump in and, and say, try this, try that, try this. So I would say in the last couple of years, we've come together better as a community and maybe, maybe longer than that, but it just feels more intense in the last couple of years, maybe because COVID. Um, kind of forced us to um, not invent the wheel again. You know, how often did we go to meetings or, or meet new providers or whatever, and, and people are bringing things to the table, but we're reinventing that same wheel. I feel like we finally have moved on beyond that. And we're, we're learning how to put the four wheels together and making it work as a one. And, you know, our, our, our community in New Mexico is amazing. Well, you have, um, you have personal experience with losing loved ones, obviously professional experience mm -hmm. with, with other families. I'm, I'm wondering if you um, would be willing to talk about your story. Absolutely. And, and if you just, you know, I still talk to parents. Even today, I, we started a mom's group that um, we meet for lunch once a month. And in the beginning, you know, we always said, your story is my story. Your story is my story. And it was, it was parallel. Jen Weisberg is my, um, you know, our executive director and my friend. And our stories were parallel to the, you know, minute of our boys. And we both lost our boys. We just lived on different sides of Albuquerque. And so all the moms we met over, you know, 10 years, they all share the same story. So the story's the same, you know, I, I've met with our mom's group, we've met, you know, I think the last five or six new members, um, their child was lost to um, fentanyl. And the, the only thing that changed in the story was the drug. So instead of heroin, it's fentanyl now. And grief is the same, the pain is the same, the journey is the same. Um, and so losing my son to heroin, I, the only thing I change is, you know, describing that it's it's just a little more intense. You know, if he was overdosing on heroin, he would maybe need one, um, you know, one puff of Narcan. Whereas if someone now overdoses on fentanyl, three or four sometimes don't even bring them back. So that's just the example of how intense it is and, and how much of a grip it takes to physically to the body and to the brain. Um, I hope I touched what, what you went, you know, so it, the story's the same, good kids, good school, good family, you know, we talked to Michael about sex and drugs and alcohol at a young age. Um, curiosity got the best of him at the end of the day. And he was pretty open with me when we talked about his, um, his addiction. And he started with pills in high school and then ended up getting introduced to heroin in college. And, um, 
you know, again, that journey really truly is very similar to kids today. Um, I'm, I've met a couple of moms that lost their children uh, in their mid-20s. So they had been experimenting for several years or maybe not even until after high school. And um, their first attempt at experimenting did happen to have to be fentanyl. So there's the difference. With heroin, I had two and a half years to try to help my son. And a lot of the families that we meet now didn't even have a day to help because it's, it's so intense. Um, I wanna repeat what Sam said, which is really prolific is he met this judge somewhere back East. And he said, you know, do you have fentanyl clients in your drug court program? And the judge said, no, because they die before they can even get to me. And, um, you know, that tells you right there, the deaths are coming pretty quick and it's in New Mexico. It's here. There's no denying it. We've met with UNM, um, department heads when Sam was here and they were sharing with us the, the clientele that they're seeing. And what I do want to mention as well is, um, meth. So meth is a whole new animal as well. Um, they're seeing, you know, meth is again in the eighties, you could do meth on the weekends. And back then we called it speed or we know, whatever meth is a whole different thing today. And they are finding that people who use it are going into psychosis and sometimes they're not coming out. Sometimes they'll come out for two weeks and then maybe something will trigger and, and all of a sudden they're, they're in psychosis again, even though they've been clean for 30 days. So um, that is contributing to our homelessness that you're seeing, you know, today in Albuquerque, all the crime, you know, these folks were just regular people who fell into addiction and it's now, you know, between fentanyl and meth, it's, it's just destroying our communities. Yeah. The, um, the long-term impacts on people's brains that Sam writes about um, mm -hmm. in the least of us really for me resonated in thinking about a particular, um, person I know who struggled with drug addiction and now, um, you know, is requires full-time care from mm -hmm. his mother. And it's really made me think um, about those long-term neurological impacts and, and just how, how devastating they are that even if you, even if you can make it into recovery and, mm -hmm. and, and have the resources and, and the ability to, to think about recovery and, and stepping away from the, the hold that this drug has over you, mm -hmm. um, the long-term neurological impacts are really devastating and, and right. really scary. Um, and unknown. Yeah, right, right. And, yeah. and they, they, they ripple throughout not just the individual's lives, but the family's lives and the communities. Um, and so I'm curious, like for parents who might either be um, worried or, you know, any family members, not sure. parents who are worried about um, loved ones, either because they're struggling with addiction or because these family members are grieving someone who overdosed, you know, what kind of advice do you have for, for family members? You know, absolutely be honest with the person that's involved, show them the statistics, talk to them about it. And the second the, the discussion becomes escalated and angry, walk away. 
because once that person gets there, you're not, you're just frustrating yourself. If you're not getting anywhere and just revisit it and you just revisit it and revisit it. And even if it takes six months to, to just get little, little things into that, um, you know, persons, the, the loved one who's struggling, every little seed you plant is going to make a difference. Never give up, never give up, never give up as parents, you know, or a loved one or a partner. There are resource out, resources out there. New Mexico does have a lot more than we did 10 years ago. Um, everybody locally is shifting, you know, how do we help those on fentanyl? Um, you know, you can always call Serenity Mesa because even if you're 50 and not 15 will help you and give you a resource or go to our um, website. Um, open communication, you know, and those who maybe, and COVID has really made it hard for parents and teachers. You know, we used to go into the schools pre-COVID at least every month and do presentations and all of that has changed. And I finally got our foot in the door a couple months ago at a local high school. And Jen and I were talking, we really have to re- vamp our presentations to family and students and as Sam said which is something we've done in the past but I think we really need to do is include the brain and show kids and show teachers and show parents what you know what it does to the brain and that kind of just brings a little better understanding of addiction and that's never been different that's been the same for hundreds of years or however long MRIs and CT scans of brains have been around um, but it should be part of the discussion is the thing so um, for parents out there who are trying or, or anybody in the community, just have the resources ready, have phone numbers ready, have um, call places and just say, hey, you know, try to get your loved one on the phone. But if not, then at least establish a relationship, get them on every wait list that there is. A wait list can change by the day. You can call one place and they'll tell you 30 days and they'll call you two days later and it's opened up. So never let a wait list um, deter you. Always put that person on that wait list. Um, insurance companies offer peer support workers now and care managers, and the family could just call up the insurance, even Medicaid, every single insurance should offer you a person on the other end that works as a liaison. And that is a wealth, you know, back when Jen and I did it, we both had a notebook this full of notes, who to call, who to call, who to, you know, phone numbers. And, and now you, we, there's people out there to help. And again, that's why I'm proud of New Mexico because we've really um, shifted, you know, and, and, it, and it's an easier, not always easy. It is not. You just can't give up. You just have to keep going because there's always hope. Always, always hope. So, and we'll put, we, we're putting those resources in the comments for people. I also just lastly wanted to ask you, um, you know, especially for someone like me, like I'm the environment reporter at New Mexico PBS, but I can see what's happening in my neighborhood and in, you know, in Albuquerque. And I feel like this is a really big issue, but I also know because this isn't my beat, because this isn't my expertise. I just wanted to ask you, you know, what misperceptions do you see out there among people or in the media that, that maybe you want to address or caution people about? You know, the biggest one from day one is, oh, that would, that, that wouldn't happen to us. That would, you know, that would never, oh my gosh, my family would never do that. Or we're of a certain social stature and we don't do those kind of things. It can happen to anybody, anybody, anybody. And I, I think if, you know, addiction and mental health often go hand in hand. And I, I just, the stigma, and it's unfortunate that 10 years later, the stigma is still there. I think um, hearing from, you know, first responders, they're so jaded, not all of them, some are jaded. 
And, you know, APD just announced at Sam's event they, that they're doing special training, you know, with, with, their, um, with their members just to remind them that they're people. You know, a lot of people refer to them as junkies, let them die. And I hear that and it just, it's heartbreaking because people forget that a person in addiction is somebody, son, daughter, mom, dad, grandparent. Um, I, I just, we need as a society to just humanize people again. Remember that we're all just people. And the person in active addiction is not your loved one. They're someone in addiction and they truly are. Their, their person is still in there, but the person acting out is the addict, not the, not the person that they know and love. So for anybody out there, you know, educate yourself and, and be prepared because I think somebody said recently, we're all one degree away from knowing somebody. And when my son died, I remember telling everybody, I wasn't going to be the mom in the church with people whispering, you know, how did Michael die? I told everybody up front how he died. And within two weeks, I was advocating for New Mexico families. So um, stigma and just keep in mind, it, it can happen to anybody. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lou, for um, talking with me today, for all the work that you do, for all that you give to our communities. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it, too. Thanks for the thanks for the spotlight, because education, awareness and talking about it is key. Thanks, Lou. Thanks. Take care. And you remember earlier on, we mentioned the great reporting done by the Albuquerque Journal recently, including that slideshow, powerful slideshow from Roberto Rosales of the Albuquerque Journal. He always does such amazing work, and we've talked to him before about covering border issues. Uh, he spends a lot of time on the crime beat as well and just gets the sort of access and personal humanizing stories that are so, so crucial and important to covering an issue like the drug, drug epidemic. And so we wanted to get him on our Facebook Live as well as his partner uh, in that reporting, uh, Matthew Risen of the Albuquerque Journal. They joined Laura Paskus again on Facebook, as I mentioned, to talk about what it's like reporting on this, what they learned. Uh, really pay attention when Laura asks about what can we be doing uh, to get our arms around this. And uh, we're hearing time and time again from people, it's really hard to say. There are a few things that can make a difference, but it, this is a tough one. And we all need to be putting our heads together and coming up with ideas. So we would love to hear from you what your experiences are, what ideas you have. We need big thinkers on this problem, and we know New Mexico can do it and can make a difference here. So here now, again, Laura Paskus with our friends at the Albuquerque Journal. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing our conversations this week um, around fentanyl this time, um, and I'm here today with two people I really, really love, Matt Risen and Roberto Rosales from the Albuquerque Journal. And we're gonna talk about a series that they had out in the Albuquerque Journal that hopefully you've all seen and we'll drop the links to the different pieces of the series um, so you can check it out. And I wanted to start with you, Matt. First of all, welcome. Thank you for having us, appreciate it. Awesome. So in, um, in one of the pieces of the series, Matt, you write that 
the drug, and you're referring to fentanyl, has changed the streets of Albuquerque. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what kinds of changes people are seeing out there. Well, there's like the changes that you see like with your eyes where like I've been reporting as has Roberto on um, these communities, like crime, like criminal justice issues for a while now. And I've seen like I did the story three years ago, about 72 hours, as did Roberta, where, you know, we were talking about how there's issues with needles, like, being strewn about, and so the, the changes you can see with fentanyl is, like, those needles, I mean, they're still there in some quantity, but now it's, like, a lot of tin foil with these burn marks, which is, like, the hallmark of, like, how people are using fentanyl. Um, most people don't inject fentanyl, like, they mostly smoke it. It gives people who use heroin, who inject heroin, like, an equal high when they smoke it so honestly a lot of people think they're doing a favor for that reason so for that reason there's just a lot of tinfoil with burn marks around i mean you see people smoking it on the street um the things that people don't see that are happening on the streets where it's being changed is like the overdoses and like obviously we have an issue with overdose deaths but like reporting on this there are just so many overdoses where like people get saved because of narcan but those things are getting more and more difficult. Um, it's like changing the way um, outreach is done is that they need more and more Narcan because fentanyl has such a high overdose rate, but also like it takes more Narcan to bring someone back from a fentanyl overdose. Narcan's like a one and done usually with heroin. Like that's the idea. It's like a one dose reversal. With Narcan, I mean, as I wrote in the story, we had people telling us that one, uh, one woman said she gave a man Narcan five times before he came back. Another person, he was 17 years old. I think he was 15 when it happened. He watched a woman die. They tried to give her Narcan to bring her back and she didn't get brought back. And I mean, that's like one way it's changing outreach. Another way it's changing outreach that's not really working right now and probably will hopefully change at some point in the future is like, they have these things called fentanyl test strips and that is to test like cocaine heroin or pills anything basically to test to see if fentanyl is in the drug which a lot of these fentanyl overdoses are unintentional people don't know they're using fentanyl the problem is these test strips are illegal like they're paraphernalia so these harm outreach groups harm reduction they can't give it out i mean they there are underground ones who are doing it but they can't publicly be giving this out because it's paraphernalia. They could get shut down. And basically they're the only line of defense for these people, like trying to prevent them from overdosing. And so like, it's changing the way that they need to do outreach and like, but it's, it's illegal to do it that way. So they're having issues with that and they're trying to adapt basically. Um, but it's also changing the way that law enforcement is, dealing with fentanyl i mean it's it's like the number one drug they're seeing now like last um in this last year there was a 900 percent increase in fentanyl seizures 242 pounds compared to like the year before it was more than they've gotten the last five years combined and that's a huge amount but if you think about it like they seized that much but there was still enough that got through to cause all these overdoses and to have it be this drug because like they're seizing it before it hits the street level a lot of the times, usually. And yet, Albuquerque police, narcotics, they're seeing it all over the place. So, I mean, that 242 pounds, that 900% increase is like, 
I mean, it's nothing compared to what's apparently out there already. And I mean, it's, it's basically changing everything for these, for the people who work to help these people who are using it and try to protect them. It's changing everything for the people who are trying to stop it from coming into the country and being sold on the street level. And it's also driving violent crime. Um, in a sense, I don't want to say it's like all of violent crime is fentanyl related, but I mean, it's, you know, there was, there's, a, I think we're at 111 murders now this year. And um, a homicide detective told me like a quarter of those. So you think like 30 something um, are drug ripoff, drug robbery tied to drug dealing. And most of those are fentanyl. So you figure a good portion of the homicides and violence. I mean, we're talking homicides. There's plenty of shootings that go unreported and there's plenty of shootings where someone doesn't die. And fentanyl is leading to a lot of these because it's so lucrative. Like you can make so much money off it and it's like, it's small, you know? So like when you get like, it go like you can get a lot and make a lot off of it. And it's, I mean, it's just, that's what I mean when it's changed. It's not just changed like what you see, it's changed what you don't see. And like the way that these groups who try to stop it and try to help people use it are operating. So Roberto, your photos accompany this series and you know, you've done crime reporting all over the city um, and bring us stories from all over the state and the border region. I'm curious, um, you know, you're, um, you know, right up there intimate with people and capturing your images. I'm wondering what changes you've seen um, and kind of how reporting this story maybe um, changed your perspective. You know, <clears throat> I've covered drug use in like Ciudad Juarez perhaps, but I think in, in Albuquerque, um, I see it more in, in the open, which is a completely, it caught me off guard. Um, you would think a border city like Ciudad Juarez might have a lot more activity of this sort. But here in mainly in the international district, unfortunately, you know, it's very just wide open. And my, I guess my perspective has changed in, in the sense that I see it more out in the open than before when in terms of drug use. In the past, it was, you'd have to really look hard to uh, see people doing drugs. Nowadays, it's, it's everywhere. And I can sort of tell the behavior, I can tell who's doing what. Um, but that has completely changed over the years. And when Matt and I were out in the streets, um, interviewing people, photographing folks, it didn't take that long to find a user. I thought we would be there for, for a while. And that was kind of concerning because you don't want to be in this same area for a long period of time um, because of who might be watching. But it, it took not even an hour to find someone who was using fentanyl in the wide open intersection of Albuquerque crossing the street back and forth and really just off into their own little world. They weren't even aware that we were nearby or following that particular person. So again, that's the way it's just so much open um, than in the previous years. I feel like I, 
I like the two streets, the two like main streets I drive on the most are 4th Street and Coors. And I feel like um, there are there are mornings sometimes or evenings when it's very clear to me that that something is happening, that people have had access to something that is causing them to, you know, be be acting be suffering in certain ways and I think that more and more people around Albuquerque like we're seeing this in all maybe all neighborhoods I don't know but um I think that's really interesting it does seem like if you're paying any attention at all to the people you're you're going past um there is clearly something very big and you know one of the misconception is one of the misconceptions is that a lot of this is just found in the international district but yeah. as we've been told you can go downtown on any evening and within 10 minutes you can acquire fentanyl so it's not just one part of the city it's it's citywide yeah, and I talked with Lou Duran from Serenity Mesa the other day, and you know she really emphasizes that this this can affect anyone, anyone's family um, can be touched by this, and so it really is um, it really is a problem for our whole community. And I'm curious, like what you mentioned, some of these map, but some of the other challenges that the um, like whether that's paramedics or doctors or people who work in the recovery community, like what are some of the unique challenges that they're facing and what maybe are some of the new solutions that they're trying to implement or find? So the, um, the Department of Health, uh, Dr. Kelly, I spoke with Dr. Robert Kelly, he was talking about the fentanyl test strips and he was saying like how important that is. Obviously like that's up to the legislature. I think they brought a measure last, I think it was SB 255, but um, trying to pass like harm reduction uh, statute or like laws that would make fentanyl test strips not illegal. And basically like that was like one thing that he kind of mentioned that like needs to be like paramount. Like you need to have these test strips available. Unintentional overdose deaths are the like majority of, I mean, like percentage wise of opioids and like in New Mexico in general. And so like, I mean, that's people who don't know what they're getting. If they had these test strips, they had access to that. They could be safer. They could potentially like prevent deaths. And I think as far as doctors go, I mean, they're just dealing with a lot more overdoses than they're used to from fentanyl. I mean, the doctor I talked to at UNMH says so it's just a daily occurrence, basically. Um, I didn't include it in my reporting, but I've, I've spoken with AFR and like they're saying like fentanyl makes up a large amount of the calls they go on as far as overdoses go. Um, it's definitely added to an increase. And yeah, as far as solutions, like I don't, it's, it's difficult because I feel like most times when I write a story, there's like that solution angle. And I think it's, I think it's still being figured out. I don't like there was, I think it's like obviously stop the drugs from being trafficked. You know, the recovery angle, try to help people, try to prevent it, try to get people off of it, you know, turn their lives around. Cause I mean, obviously the cartels are selling it because people are buying it. And if you got people off of it, I mean, that's a whole other issue though. I mean, like with drug, drug use and kind of um, squashing that in the community is not an easy task. And I think, 
what I took away from what could help this situation is like the harm reduction angle of like getting the fentanyl test strips out there. And obviously the law, I think the law enforcement angle of like trying to stop these drugs from coming in. The problem is, is like in it's, it's, a $5,000 investment in chemicals gets you $1.5 million. There's nothing that compares to that. And because it's like, like 1.5 million worth of fentanyl off $5,000, like, of course, the cartels are would rather do that than have to grow a plant, grow a poppy to get heroin to get like, so I mean, it's just like so easy for them to make so much money. And with so much less time put into it and so much less work put into it i mean it's just made into a lab and they're probably able to make so much with that they can just keep sending cars across i mean sure they're going to see some of it but the way they figure like they're not going to seize all of it and that's what's happening like despite this 900 percent increase in seizures it's still everywhere like you know like it hasn't put a dent in what local law enforcement is seeing what the overdoses are resulting so I mean, to me, that is like the two big things is to stop like enforcement, like stop it from being trafficked and then to try to help people who use it and also to work towards like recovery because it is just a dangerous drug. I mean, heroin's dangerous, like all these drugs are dangerous, but they've just never seen what they've seen with fentanyl as far as like the chance for overdose and like what is happening. It just hasn't been seen before. Um, And it's just like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I got a lot of comments, people being like, you know, like, why didn't you touch on the solutions? Like, what's the solution here? And, and I wasn't getting a lot of that. Basically, I wasn't finding a lot of that. It's new. Like, I think, I mean, it's not super new, but it's like this problem at escalating the way it has is newer. And I think everyone's trying to wrap their arms around it and do their best. Yeah, one of the things that Sam Quinones said when we had him in the studio a couple of weeks ago was like, there there aren't like second chances. Like you don't often get to make a mistake with fentanyl. And um, Roberto, I was curious, maybe, you know, what surprised you the most or what did you, um, you know, understand about this issue that maybe didn't, you know, we can never fit everything into the stories. Um. I just think uh, how I wasn't prepared for hearing all these stories about how it's like this wave coming and everybody's trying to get in this fentanyl boat. Um, Whereas like we all knew heroin has always been an issue here in Albuquerque, but um, this fentanyl stuff, it's, it's like a flood and everybody's getting wet. Um, so I wasn't prepared for how, how was, how easy it is to acquire. Um, but, you know, now knowing some of the characteristics and, and how people smoke it and, and some of that behavior, now I can, every time I'm out on a spin, I can see this. I can recognize it on an everyday level. Um, and I just know that this is what they're doing now. So yeah, it's, uh, I wasn't prepared for that, but now I think it's, it's here to stay. I, I just don't see a solution, a short-term solution. And to what you said, Laura, about like people dealing with 
either mental illness or they're going through some kind of episode. Um, I, you know, I spoke with Jennifer Burke at Sarani Mesa and she was saying like with the fentanyl users, they're seeing a lot more like manifested mental illness and psychosis with these users. And I mean, she's been doing this for long enough to know what people go through in recovery and what she sees in her clients. And she said that she thinks it's like more pronounced with fentanyl that, and these are young kids with her. She's, she's like 21 and under the people they're treating, I think. And um, yeah, she said she's seeing a lot more of that. And, you know, like the, narcotics unit told me the newest thing is fentanyl that has it's meth and fentanyl in the same pill and that's like what people want that's not like a situation where it's like they're like asking for this like people who want this they're asking for it and i guess when you smoke it it makes a yellow line instead of a black one and that's like how they know they got what they want and it's like a speedball type situation so i mean you think about meth obviously there's a known history of psychosis mental health issues with meth and you think about like a fentanyl it has its own pronounced issues like combining the two, like it's, it's definitely something that could be contributing to, um, it's definitely something that could be contributing to the increase or people having mental episodes and um, a psychosis, like out of doors, you know, untreated, obviously. Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciated about your stories um, was your obvious empathy for people. I think it's really easy. Um, I think it's really easy to like objectify people who are experiencing these struggles and um, your stories and Roberto's images, you know, really, um, I felt like elicited empathy from the audience. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, about that and, and why that's important in news reporting on something like illicit drugs and addiction. So like that's the stigma around illicit drugs and addiction is probably one of the biggest things that keeps it from being a problem we can solve. I honestly believe that. And that's my personal opinion, but I honestly believe that is like a huge portion of it. Um, I think that, you know, when you have someone, when you have someone who's using drugs, people don't see a person. Um, there's that stigma. They don't see a person. They see someone. They think that this person has made choices in their lives that has led them here. This could never happen to that the person who's viewing it. Um, you know, like, it's just it's always their fault and it's never the result of possible traumas or, and nobody can put themselves in their shoes. And I think like, to me, it's like everyone like grows up with like a dream, like everyone like grows up wanting to be something, you know, wanting to do something like nobody grows up as a child and is like, I'm going to be addicted to drugs. Like I'm going to end up doing sex work for drugs until I'm 40 years old. Like nobody says that, like everyone grows up the same. They start the same and their circumstances are often what put them in these, in these situations. And yes, like there are people who like make their own choices, of course. But in my experience, my opinion, what I've done in my work here is most of the times people are affected at a very young age by forces that are out of their control. And for those reasons, 
they end up on a road that sometimes they can't change. And honestly, like the world tells them they're not worth changing a lot of the time because of the stigma. So like the importance to me is like, you need to, you need to make sure that people know that these people have dreams, they had dreams, they have emotions, they're real people. You need to fill their characters because if you just give a name and an age, like nobody's going to think anything of them other than like, they're a drug user, you know, like they got to where they're, they got to where they're at because it's their fault. And, you know, I've had friends who've gone down that road. And I know, like, personally, like, there's nothing more I hate than someone talking down about like a drug user and being like, I'm like, you know, this person like, has a family, or they had a family, they had dreams, like they had potential, like they didn't, they didn't come out of the womb this way, you know, like being a user. This is not someone's destiny. Like, I don't buy into that one bit. And I think this story was pretty effective in humanizing because I did get a lot more response than I usually do on people empathizing with Esperanza and, you know, reaching out to me being like, how can I help this woman? Like, how can I... And it, it's heartwarming because, yeah, we get too much of that. Even in crime reporting, like there's people who like, they fall into the criminal justice system and it eats them up. And you have to remind people that these, they weren't born, that like they didn't want this. So, like, you know what I mean? Like a lot of times there are people that do things to them or there are events that happen in their lives that set them on this path. And people need to empathize. And I think that removing that stigma and humanizing people is honestly, I think that is like one of the huge keys to minimizing drug use and like the effects it has in this country. Because it's not just people on the streets, it's teenagers in their upscale homes that are like getting drugs and overdosing. You know, it's not, it's all walks of life. It's a chemical that bonds with other chemicals in your body to make you have a feeling that is unlike any other. It is something that can be, anyone can fall victim to it. And people need to see that. Like they need to see themselves in these people. Like the possibility that, you know, we're all one very traumatic event away from possibly being one of these people. They're not aliens, you know, they're not unfeeling. Like, and I think that that stigma, you know, it's been there for a long time. It needs to go away. I think it is getting better but I think like that is the importance of like humanizing these people is to get rid of that stigma and make sure that when people read these stories they're not reading it looking from the outside in that they can like put themselves in this person's shoes you know that's like that's the job for me like really because I mean that's yeah it's more than just a, a name and like an age and a rap sheet you know like yeah yeah. Well, thank you for your work. I guess the last question I had, it looks like we lost Roberto. I know how busy he is. He's probably like off on the similar assignment already. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, you know, these, these are, these are challenging stories to write and to live with. And I know reporters, we live with our stories. And I'm curious, like as a, as a crime reporter, how do you and your colleagues um, take care of your own selves through this sort of stuff? 
Well, we're all a very close knit group and we all check on each other, me and obviously Roberto and like Elise Kaplan, who's like, yeah, one of my favorite people. And I mean, we, we know to check in with each other and we work very closely together and we have a good support system. Um, obviously, like personally, like stories get challenging and, you know, especially children stories, like stories that involve children being hurt or becoming the victims in situations. But you, you have a job to do and you have to do it. And obviously, like you have to also take care of yourself, but you have to just find the time to do both because you can't, you can't sacrifice one for the other in my mind. I mean, you know, I found a good balance and like taking care of myself and also like trying to tell like the tough stories because that's what I love to do. And I mean, I wouldn't be as happy in my off time and satisfied in my life if I didn't keep doing that. Um, yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks for your work. Thanks for joining me today. Please um, give my best to Roberto too. And um, yeah, we look forward to seeing what's next. Yeah, thanks for having me and um, stay safe. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye. That's going to do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast episode. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, here from New Mexico PBS. And again, we want to remind you to join us for our next episode on Friday when we begin our top 10 countdown of 2021, the top stories of the year, starting with number 10. We will go from 10 to 6 this week and then 5 through 1 next week. But you can get it all here on the podcast. We have a special line panel that's helping us with that. That's all working journalists from all across the state. We thank them for the time, especially when it was a busy week with the special session going on. They made time to do this with us. And it's always interesting to have their reflections and thoughts on what made the year that was. And it was a doozy of a year again. So no shortage of things to talk about. We'll do that all Friday. Until then, stay up to date with the show on all of our social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. You can find us any of those places or head to the website, newmexicoandfocus.org. And until then, stay safe and stay healthy.